So welcome to Great Minds. And we are uh, have an embarrassment of riches today. We have two guests and we're going to take an interesting turn today. And we're going to talk politics. We're going to talk about the midterm elections. We're going to talk about the state of our country. Uh, and uh, I'm pretty excited to have you both. So with us are Zach Malamud, who is the co-founder and director of The Next 50 and The Next 50 senior advisor, uh, former and perhaps future member of the House of Representatives, Abby Finkenauer. So welcome to you both. Thanks for having us, Matt. Great. So, Zach, I I, want to start with you and I want to go back to about 2009, give or take, 2008. And you were working then for the Nassau County Democratic Party. You were working for, I think it was Assemblywoman, was it Michelle Schimmel, was it? Yeah, 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 you got Uh, it. And I'd love to look back now where, you know, 10, 11 years later, the state of politics in America is vastly different. Reflecting on your earliest exposure, and I want to talk about what attracted you at such a young age to get involved with politics, but looking back on that period, um, when you think about where we are today, does it fire you up? Does it depress you? Do you shake your head and roll your eyes? Reflect on that journey from when you first got engaged in politics about 10 years ago. Sure. Yeah, that's a deep cut there working for uh, the Nassau County Democratic Party. I think you'd have to dig deep into my, my LinkedIn profile to even know that I did that. But uh, yeah, that was my first engagement in politics. Um, and it's because uh, the assemblywoman at the time uh, acknowledged my leadership in, in the community and wanted to appoint me as her youngest intern uh, ever uh, uh, to the state assembly. And, uh, you know, actually at the time, my politics were quite governed by fear. You know, I grew up in New York in the wake of 9-11, and I still reflect on that day with the cloud, cloud of ashes coming over my town um, and, 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 and reflect on how that uh, really governed my politics for uh, what a better part of seven or eight years. And yeah, I was a really young kid, but nonetheless, it governed my outlook on the world. And it took an assemblywoman like Michelle Schimmel, who uh, was quite aspirational, even ahead of her time on issues like climate and gun safety, to really start to shift my politics from one of a fear to one of hope and aspiration. Um, and, and, you know, if, if we fast forward to the 2016 election, I, I could empathize with a lot of voters, whether they were Bernie voters or Trump voters, who, who, who were voting out of fear in, in, in many instances. Um, and that, that politics continues uh, uh, to, to resonate today. Uh, but that being said, uh, I think, uh, you know, in, in this election, uh, when people vote for folks like, you know, Congresswoman Abby Finkenauer, when people voted for, for, for John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock in Georgia, there is a sense of hope that, that permeates. And, and, and perhaps there are these two different Americas governed by their, their economic realities that they're facing. Uh, but I think it's the young people today who we need to be stepping up and and projecting that vision of hope that President Obama did back in 2008 when he first ran for president. Uh, and that's part of what the next 50 is doing today, trying to find whether than the next Barack Obama or just the next big you know, shining leader in their community. Uh, it, it's finding those ho- people who give hope to, to young folks uh, so that that aspiration really does govern their politics. Fantastic. So, Abby. You are one of the youngest, I think technically the second youngest 
person to ever serve in Congress. Um, you also served as a member of the Iowa House of Representatives, and Iowa holds a special place in American politics. I know both of your parents worked, and I guess probably still work. Talk about, you know, and I also know that you were a page working for both Democrats and Republicans as a, as a younger person. Talk about what shaped you and your fire to get into politics and the role that your parents, both working parents in, you know, the great state of Iowa, talk about what shaped you and fueled your fire to get into politics at also a very young age. Well, thank you. And happy to say my parents are actually both happily and well-deserved retired at this point. Wonderful. And, um, you know, I, I would say, yes, it's, it's my parents, it's my family. It was my grandfather that I'd sit around, you know, the kitchen table with my grandfather and my uncles, one of which was a Republican. And then some were Democrats, some were independent and it'd be my grandfather and I and, and all of them. At, I was, I think about 10 years old. Um, we'd go to church on Saturday nights and then we'd sit around the kitchen table after dinner talking about politics. And we'd have, you know, all of these different viewpoints at the table. And my grandfather, who was a firefighter, um, he was somebody who, when he talked about politics and when he talked about policy, it was very much wrapped into public service because that's what he did. That's what he knew. And that those conversations really just shaped my life because it gave me this idea that, you know, politics isn't all this nasty stuff of throwing things at each other and all of that that you often hear about today. It's about public service and there's a value in that. And that's really what shaped my life. And, you know, I was able, yes, to be a page for the U.S. House of Representatives when I was 16 in the Republican cloakroom. And I just remember serving there and getting to know some of these folks. Honestly, it was 2006. It was the Republican cloakroom. It was mostly congressmen. And, you know, meeting some of them and thinking to myself, you know, I had never been to DC before. I'd never been on a plane before I had that experience. And there I was in these rooms having these conversations. And I just remember thinking to myself, you know, this person over here, I mean, nice guy and all, but, you know, he clearly doesn't know everything. And, and I kind of thought to myself, well, if this guy could do it, why couldn't somebody like me? And those experiences at a really young age, I think, again, really shaped my life. It wasn't this idea that I ever thought, oh, I would run one day, but I just remember those barriers really breaking down when you're young and you're around it and you realize that these people that are in power, that are making the laws, they are not perfect people. Um, and as a young woman, I think that was really, really, really important for me to see because oftentimes we build up those barriers and don't ever see ourselves in it. So at give or take 27, you run for and win election into the Iowa House of Representatives. I'm gonna guess that you were the youngest member. I'm gonna guess the majority were older white males. Talk about how they received you. Did they take you seriously? And were you given an opportunity uh, willingly by your colleagues to make an impact? Or did you have to fight for it? 
was interesting. Actually, I was 24 when I ran for state house, 25 when I got elected. And I was not the youngest woman ever at that point, but I was the youngest woman um, during that term. And I do remember, you know, coming in there, I got to know a lot of these folks because I had been a page in the Iowa House as well. I had worked um, for the legislature for two years as a um, as a clerk, which is kind of an assistant to one of the representatives. And so I've gotten to know them, but it was a whole different thing, right? When I'm there also with a vote and with a voice and I wasn't afraid to use my voice. And oftentimes I had to, especially when it came to whether it was women's reproductive health. Uh, I was, I remember one time standing up, making a speech, looking around, um, they were doing an unconstitutional abortion ban. And as I'm looking around, I'm going, oh, wow. I'm one of five out of this 100 that are of childbearing age and a woman where this bill could actually affect one day. And so, you know, it just kind of puts a different onus on what you're doing. And then when it comes to even being taken seriously, I remember early on, um, you know, I was working on, it was my first bill. I wanted it to be bipartisan. I thought that was really important to make sure we could bring people together, just get things done and some common sense stuff. It was a piece of legislation actually having to do with um, being able to speak in committee uh, remotely if you are around the state and you have an opinion about a bill because we have bad weather in Iowa in the winter. So I thought this is a great idea. And so off I go trying to get my different co-sponsors. I wanted the exact number of Democrats and Republicans. I got my first Republican co-sponsor because the poor guy accidentally thought I was a page sitting next to him in committee and asked me to hand out papers. And he felt so bad that he mistook me for a page that um, I asked him to be a co-sponsor on this bill. And he looked at me and he goes, I don't even know what it is, but yes, because he felt so bad. And that was my first one. And then I got 10 Republicans, 10 Democrats. And I remember um, one of the Republicans coming up to me and um, he was a man. And, and he was real concerned because he was like, why are all these people signing on to Finkenauer's bill? He couldn't figure it out because I was going around and asking them, right? And I was having conversations and I sit down and he's trying to figure this out. And I'm telling him about the bill. I'm like, it's a great bill. Would love to have you on it. And he goes, well, you know, I was wondering how you got all these people on it. But I do have to say, you do have a certain charm about you. And I went, are you freaking serious, <laughs> right? Um, no, it was, he was trying to make it as though because I was young and because I was a woman, that's how I got those co-sponsors because he pointed out they were all men. And I looked at him and I was just like, you don't have very many women in your caucus, first of all. Second of all, it is, I, I, you, how dare you take away my bill, my ability to talk about the points in this bill and make it about something that it obviously wasn't. And I just, I knew at that point that it was gonna be different for me but I was gonna do everything I could to make sure that I was respected, that my ideas were heard and that I got stuff done. And that's just kind of what guided me both in the state house and in Congress. Great, all right, and we're gonna come back in a minute to your tenure in Congress. But Zach, you have been a voice for young people in politics now for a long time. I remember many, many years going to an event when you created Student Voice I think that Microsoft hosted for you. That must have been eight, mm -hmm. nine, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. talk, talk about the journey to the next 50 
And what I see is a fierce determination to rewrite the narrative on young people being engaged in politics and helping to shape our future. Yeah, well, if you remember, Matt, Student Voice started back in 2012 via Twitter chat, a hashtag on Twitter. Uh, And and the inspiration behind that was actually seeing a bunch of teachers uh, forming their own Twitter chats online, talking about how they were gonna improve education. Meanwhile, Twitter was blocked in my own school. And so teachers were using Twitter as an education, uh, professional development platform and students couldn't even access those conversations. So after school, we would access those conversations we recognize we, there was an opportunity for us to create our own space, our own channel for those conversations. Um, and so we started with the hashtag Stu Voice and invited uh, presidential candidates, journalists, educators, students from across the country, from Ferguson, Missouri to Fargo, North Dakota, um, and, uh, and ultimately the U.S. Secretary of Education. Uh, and this was all about uh, recognizing that there's power in proximity and, and online, the digital space, the virtual space, uh, really helped build uh, power for young folks as advocates for equity and education to the point where Student Voice nearly a decade later uh, still exists and is the leading national organization helping students advocate for justice and education. All that said, um, my transition to politics really began when I was I continued my education work in philanthropy. Uh, and in the wake of the 2016 election, really started to see how all the social issues, economic issues that communities face intersect in the school environment. So you wanna talk about a broken criminal justice system, a broken immigration system, a broken healthcare system, communities being ravaged by climate change. That was all in the school building every single day. And so I felt like uh, as I had already built and done my work in the education space, I needed to do more beyond education to make sure that students were going to school in environments or help do my part to make sure students were going to school in environments where they could learn productively, um, but also you know, build stronger communities for those students to, to live and thrive in. Uh, and so that, that's part of what uh, was my natural transition to politics, uh, but I carry with me that commitment to young people as voices for that equity, for that justice that we continue to fight for. Fantastic. So Abby, you go from the Iowa State House to the big house in Washington, <laughs> D.C. And I guess by uh, a few months difference, you and uh, uh, AOC become the two youngest women to ever be elected to the House in Washington. Go back to when you first decided to run and when you were just having some quiet, reflective moments with yourself. Um, Were you nervous? Were you excited? Were you determined? I'm going to guess it was a little bit of all of them. And what it must have been like on that election night in November when you won. Yeah, so I decided to run, oh gosh, I I guess I really started thinking about it December of 2016, but didn't really know if it was the right decision or not until it was February of 2017. And I was currently serving in the state house and, you know, our state just, Donald Trump won Iowa. We had 
We did not win the first congressional district back, which I think a lot of folks thought we had a good shot at. Um, that's the seat I ended up running for. Republicans had complete control of my state. And, you know, I, I'm standing there fighting back against some of the worst worker um, or attacks on working families that our state had ever seen, whether it was attacks on work comp, was there attacks on collective bargaining? I mean, just going after people like my family. Right. These bill, these um, those laws had been on the books for decades. Many of them started out bipartisan. They were good laws. We had some of the best, especially when it came to workers comp, when it came to, again, collective bargaining, some of the best laws in the book when it came to this. And again, so much started out bipartisanly de decades ago. And then there I was watching my friends and family get attacked on that floor. And I thought, you know, this is just not how we treat people in my state or in my country. And when I was taking a no vote actually against one of these bills, um, we all stood up. So we, instead of just even pushing a button, we said no out loud in solidarity with the working families up in the gallery and across the state. And I had tears in my eyes and I just said, you know, I'm gonna do whatever the heck I can to bring back decency, to bring back integrity, to bring back, you know, having, again, elected officials who care about your neighbors. I mean, just the simple things, right? And I knew at that moment, I had no idea how I was going to do it, but I knew it was absolutely the right thing to do and um, that no one was going to fight harder. And so that's when I knew I was running and it sure was a journey because I, you know, was paying off student loans. Um, nobody in my family really could write me checks um, bigger than $500. And if they could do that, that was a huge, huge deal. Right. So I just was like, I don't know how I'm going to raise the money. A lot of, I got laughed out of rooms um, in DC who thought, you know, what is this 28 year old who has student loans, who has no money of her own, doing running against a millionaire for Congress who could write himself $500,000 checks and did, what is she doing? And I, again, didn't know exactly how I was going to do it, but I knew I was going to work hard. And it was definitely, you know, it was a lot of just making a bunch of phone calls, hoping that um, folks here in Iowa and across the country cared about our democracy, cared about taking back the house and that we could do this. And so we did. And, but I remember again, there were moments where I almost didn't, I, I was filling up gas one night. We have 20 counties in this district and I was paying for my own gas. We didn't have money really in the campaign account yet. And I was making 25 grand a year as a you know, state rep, and I, I didn't know how I was going to keep paying and filling up my gas tank. And I it hit me in that moment why people who have money run for office and why people who don't don't. And I also knew again, I, I just kept saying, I know this is the right thing to do. I will call everybody for $25, for $50, whatever it is. And that's truly how it happened, um, where I just, no one was going to outwork me. Uh, we were going to make sure we had the resources to tell our story, to make sure people knew who the guy I was running against was in terms of his votes in Congress. I mean, it, it the voting to, you know, gut protections of pre-existing conditions, a bunch of stuff, right? And I knew we had to have those resources to do that. And we got there, but I have to tell you, it should not be that hard for young people who have a voice and have ideas to run for office. And that's also why I just got so excited about the work Next50 is doing.
So Zach, let's get into the next 50 a little bit and talk about what you're doing here. It's really, uh, I think, unprecedented, certainly in, in the modern digital age. And you are working to support and help influence the course of our country. Talk about the formation of the next 50, your vision, and where you are right now as uh, I know, you, Abby, you had a big event in Iowa a few days ago. I think midterm season is already upon us in many ways. So let's talk about where we are right now, Zach, and the journey to getting to today for the next 50. Yeah, totally. I, I think your, your listeners might appreciate the fact that I actually was working at, uh, at Facebook out in the Bay Area when the next 50 uh, was born. And it was because I was invited to an exploratory committee event uh, for a presidential candidate who uh, asked if I'd host a Young Professionals event for them. And I thought about it, I'd never done it before. And I went home uh, and I thought about, uh, you know, you know my, my journey to Facebook and really my, 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 my career's path and, and reflected on the fact that, you know, when my first week at Facebook, um, I actually had a pre-planned trip to Auschwitz with my grandmother and my sister. Um, and I come back from, from my trip to Auschwitz and, uh, you know, see images around the office at, at my office uh, at the Facebook office of children getting detained at the border and separated from their families. And, and I really had this WTF am I doing at Facebook moment. Um, and so when I, you know, we flash forward to this opportunity to start engaging with, in the presidential elections, especially with a candidate who I believed in, I thought, oh, how can I build community in the Bay Area uh, among young folks who are coming into to capital? It means that like young people, uh, I mean, the, where they would have disposable income to spend on our coming elections and uh, decided to actually reach out to 18 uh, soon to be active or currently active presidential candidates uh, and ask them if they were interested in us hosting an event for them uh, in the Bay Area. And fast forward, not only did we do it for all 18 of those presidential candidates, we did it across five cities and built a community by the end of the cycle of over 17,000 donors who contributed over $4.7 million uh, toward this election cycle. Um, and some folks who had never given before ended up giving in the range of millions uh, to, to, our, to our election cycle. And, and the reason why giving, we see giving a political giving as, a, as an important form of political engagement is because young people are asked to knock on doors. They're asked to march in the streets. They're asked to sign petitions and they're actually asked to vote, but they're not necessarily asked to give their dollar uh, to candidates who represent their values, especially at the local level. And, and we started to, to recognize that once the pandemic hit, the value of actually investing in local candidates. Uh, we uh, had actually pioneered hosting Zoom fundraisers before uh, you needed to host a Zoom fundraiser. We, we uh, helped a presidential candidate, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, uh, do this before, before he needed to. And uh, by the time uh, the cycle really got into, sorry, by, by the time the pandemic uh, really had shifted the way we fundraise, we started to host these young down-ballot candidates in swing districts. We just otherwise would have never met before because they couldn't afford to fly out to San Francisco or New York or, or because we didn't believe in person, they could have really galvanized the audience necessary for the event to be successful. Well, in our first two events, we actually ended up raising more money for these young down ballot candidates running in swing districts than we did for some of the presidential candidates. And this money in large part came from or due to young people. Uh, when I say young people, from a donor perspective, we talk about folks who are under the age of 40. Um, and we talk about candidates roughly the same. Uh, and, uh, in that, in that instance, you know, what we really started to recognize 
was that you know a young person's $25 spent on a, a Biden presidential campaign that would spend over a billion dollars or a Senate race like John Ossoff's that would spend in the range of hundreds of millions of dollars wouldn't go as far as investing in a state legislature race uh, in Wisconsin or a state uh, Senate race in New York State. And one of my favorite victories actually of this past cycle was of a uh, New York State Senate candidate running in Western New York. Uh, and so of the candidates, I just wanna give you context of so the candidates we backed, 15 of the candidates we backed were all in swing districts. 13 were in uh, swing states, 11 were candidates of color and two were LGBTQ plus. Um, but one of the candidates who was not in a swing state uh, was Samra Brook, a state Senate candidate in Western New York running in the Rochester area. And uh, she uh, was running in a district that hadn't elected a Democrat since the, the, the mid uh, 20th century. They had never elected a, a black woman from Western New York to Albany. Um, and, uh, and, and in the process of her winning, she not only made history in terms of her representation, uh, and flipped to District Blue, she also helped give Democrats a supermajority in the state Senate. Her victory was key to Democrats having a supermajority that now uh, is, is going to uh, lead to a fair redistricting process uh, where Democrats will likely pick up somewhere around three U.S. House seats. And so if you're a young person looking to invest money in politics, or you're a person who just isn't a billionaire looking to invest money in politics, you want to invest in the places where you can have the highest impact. And that's what we hope to help young people and new political donors find is where can you have the greatest bang for buck, but also invest in this next generation of leadership that the data backs up, just doesn't have the same access to capital to run for office that, that older folks do. And Abby's story per perfectly captures that. And, and moving forward, the next 50 plans to invest in 50 young candidates every two years who are running in swing districts to help shape uh, uh, the balance of power in our country, but also to make sure that as we do that, we're electing this next generation of leaders that understands uh, the problems facing us today and also will experience the uh, consequences of our decisions made for years to come. So as you look to swing the balance of power, uh, we know the playing field is not always equal uh, or mm -hmm. level, I guess I should say. And there are certain places in our country that uh, punch above their weight in terms of influence. Right. One of those places, Abby, is Iowa. Not a lot of us outside of Iowa have real insights into the Iowa caucuses, into what goes on inside the, you know, quote, four walls of your state. You know, I, I go back in my own, you know, mind to, you know, the, the brilliant series uh, Veep. And I remember when <laughs> Selena Meyer was going to run, she went to Iowa. And we all know that in the real world, candidates go flocking to Iowa. Give us a little bit of insight into what none of us could possibly know who have never lived and worked and represented, in your case, the state of Iowa. What goes on there and what makes it such a special, interesting, outsized, influential place in our electoral politics? Yeah, so, you know, the, the spirit of the caucuses really got started, um, well, decades ago, and it, it was really this idea where you have, you know, your neighbors in a room um, talking, actually having discussions about uh, different candidates, all of that. And it was interesting because why I think um, in most recent years, um, well, besides this last time, um, the caucuses 
you know, were so notable was when um, our then, or he was then Senator Barack Obama won the Iowa caucuses. And I think um, a lot of folks were surprised at just, you know, how I think at that point, a lot of folks thought um, uh, then Secretary Clinton was going, you know, front runner was going to win the caucuses, all the things. And then um, here comes Senator Barack Obama with one of the best organizing teams that anyone had really had ever seen and did the work of, you know, creating precinct captains of helping people have conversations with their neighbors. So that's kind of um, where that's at. And, and part of why, again, it's interesting that people, when you don't have as much money, when you aren't the front runner, that type of thing, um, you can make a run because you can really spend time. It's not too expensive to compete in Iowa. So that's kind of um, the big piece of it. But um, what it's like, though, is really interesting because I, you know, obviously was a congresswoman this last time and I was going to make sure that I could use my platform to uplift issues I cared about. And so we did a fun <laughs> event uh, because there was lots of different events going on, focused on lots of different things. And it was all great and important. And, you know, again, all different topics. Um, great. But one thing that was not being talked about was infrastructure and jobs. And that's something that's incredibly important to me, was incredibly important to my time in Congress. We have the most structurally deficient bridges in the entire country in Iowa. We desperately need broadband. I could go on and on and on. But anyway, I hosted, I believe it was the eight at the time presidential candidates, where every single one of them came to the event. We got them to each commit to a large infrastructure package that was going to address the needs that we saw in Iowa, but also across the country. And also got them, you know, with details as well. One thing that I found really important, um, the question that um, then, you know, um, well, Vice President Biden, but uh, now President Biden got was about Made in America and ensuring that we closed loopholes that allowed some cities and states to get around uh, made, in America, made in America requirements that were just so important. If you're talking about investments in our communities, you better be paying fair wages and you better be making those products in America, right? And so we got him to commit to that. And then what do you know, the next week and a half, he puts out an infrastructure plan. And his answer to that question was part of the infrastructure plan. So that just shows kind of, again, the influence it can have if done um, around the issues you care about. And I was not going to waste that opportunity. And I was going to make sure, again, whoever we had as um, the Democratic nominee cared about those issues as well. Matt, I, you know, I think Abby just really spoke well to um, a, a concept I, I referenced earlier, the power of proximity. And, and the Iowa caucus really does build that uh, for young people in particular, or really just the, the, the citizens of Iowa because presidential candidates are swarming Iowa. Everyone gets to meet. Uh, they expect to shake hands with a presidential candidate. And so for us at the next 50, when we started to host these presidential candidates, it was with this idea that young people don't expect across the country to have the opportunity to meet a presidential candidate. Um, uh, and if they do, they expect, and the barrier to entry is too high. And so what we did with these events is, while we were raising money, no one was required to pay a single dollar to meet the candidate. And when I say meet the candidate, it wasn't like you were just showing up in the room. And nearly all of our events, not only did you get to get in the room, every event, at the end of the event, there was a selfie line where you got to have a one-on-one -on -one interaction with that candidate. Uh, these are memorable interactions that these people would, that, would then go on and inspire these folks to further civic action and perhaps even engagement with these campaigns. 
Uh, and so whether, whether it be in person, although it's hard to get candidates everywhere all across the country um, or, or online, it's about making this stuff, more, th these interactions with our elected leaders more accessible. Uh, and and the, the virtual space, the digital space pre presents that opportunity uh, to maybe not quite replicate the experience that Iowans have during the caucuses, um, but to at least learn from some of the uh, successes of it uh, from a civic engagement perspective uh, moving forward. Great stuff. So let's talk policy for a second. One of the things that I lament in watching all the vitriol in Washington is the lack of focus on policy uh, and the uh, near total abandonment of a concept, Abby, that you referenced when you were trying to get your very first bill passed in the state house. And that's the concept of bipartisanship. Let's get your observations on how we get back as a country to bipartisanship. I guess there was agreement on an infrastructure bill. Ultimately, a lot of people are yelling and screaming. The Democrats feel it didn't go nearly uh, far enough. The Republicans felt it went too far and yell about, uh, about pork in the bill. How do we get back to a place where the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are working together and the old notion, sometimes you win, sometimes we win, sometimes everybody's happy, sometimes nobody's happy, but the business of the United States of America has to get done. Yeah, well, I mean, just to put this in perspective, I got sworn in in the middle of a government shutdown after we went from complete Republican control where um, the, you know, the, they had the House, the Republicans of the House, had the Senate, had the presidency, and couldn't agree on a budget. So <laughs> uh, I remember watching that. Uh, it was right around Christmas, and I'm realizing, oh my goodness, you know, not great. The government's not funded. And then I went, oh my goodness the next thing we've got to do, I mean, the first thing I'm going to be doing as a congresswoman is trying to open our government up again, because they could, the same party couldn't even agree. So I would just like to say it doesn't, I think we even have better chances of bipartisanship um, when um, we can have some different policy discussions. And I think that's important. But, um, but anyway, I mean, I just, I really kind of didn't let things get in my way when it came to bipartisanship. And I think we need more people that do that, right? I mean, my first bill I got passed within two weeks and it was um, having to do with a state trade exchange commission where you're helping, um, you know, different states get access to different trade programs and things like that that help their economy. Just things that aren't super sexy, right? But show up in a really big way for different communities. And um, and I, I kind of think that was one of the most surprising things for me coming in is that I really did care about the policy, right? I passed over 20 some by, you know, or I introduced over 20 some bipartisan bills. We passed quite a few of them and we worked really hard across the aisle. We got a lot of things done. We were able to work with the transportation infrastructure chairman to pass one of the best investments in rural infrastructure that our country had ever seen. And many of them were the, the again, the kind of the nitty gritty policy things that not a lot of people found really exciting, but I knew just showed up well here. And I think um, that's, I, I, I hope we elect more leaders 
who like the policy and who want to do the work, right? And that's the thing. This is public service and being in Washington shouldn't it be about the fancy chandeliers or whatever you're doing and that you think it, you know, you want the title or something like that. It was never about that for me. And I think unfortunately it becomes too much about that for people who've been there for decades and who should be thinking about why are you there anymore? right? Um, there's more work to this. And I think so much of it too, if you elect leaders who are paying attention to their constituents and what they need as well, you then go craft policy that reflects that, right? And so I was really proud of the office that I ran and how we got things done. Um, and my staff was incredible and they knew it was hard work, but it was work worth doing. And I think what also happens though, is when you have people like that, for example, what we were doing, um, just kind of keeping our heads down and getting it done, it doesn't often get the media attention, right? As I often said, my day was very different than what you saw on CNN or Fox. And unfortunately, that just wasn't really seen. And you really have to try to tell that story yourself, but um, it's a tough thing to do when, you know, people don't want to focus on the the roads and the bridges and the and the minute policy details you're trying to get done, or even childcare, right? It's I mean that stuff is important. It's just wasn't as sexy as some of the other things going on, or things one colleague may tweet out, or another person across the aisle might say, um, or what the president might be tweeting out, right? That just dominated everything. And I just hope America and folks listening know that people are doing the work. Um, you just might not be seeing it all the time. So Zach, you're using a lot of digital tools to fuel what the next 50 is doing. Uh, in the media at large, where you get your information from and what that information is very wildly. Mm -hmm. Talk about the evolution of that landscape and that we really are divided as a nation in ways that, I, 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 and in some ways it almost feels like the divide now is greater than the divide was in the 1770s between us and England. Yeah, well, it's interesting you talk about the this this divide. You know, um, a big source of community for Americans has often been the church or, or some place, a house of worship, and you know the data does back up that America is becoming uh, less religious, and they're looking for different places to find community. And I think community is really at the core of how we bring folks together. And so part of how the Next 50 uh, got its work started was actually by identifying uh, these civic gathering spaces in cities like Boston and San Francisco and Los Angeles, where people were coming together to talk about uh, the issues that, that, that were, were affecting them in their daily lives. Uh, and, and acknowledging the like, civic spaces and having these conversations, creating spaces for people of different ideologies to come together uh, and, and talk about how to better our communities and our country. Uh, is perhaps one of the most effective and important ways uh, to uh, you know, uh, uh, reduce the divisiveness uh, in our country. Uh, and so for us, it's the community piece. People are longing for community. And if they don't find it in a house of worship, oftentimes they find it with people who they see as like-minded and politics tends to be a, a unifying force in that way. 
And what we still hope to do with the next 50 is help young folks, particularly young folks out of college. You know, if you're a young folk in co- person in college, there are clubs to join. Uh, you know, there, there are volunteer opportunities that people are consistently engaged with. Uh, after college, there's a bit of a void there. It's like, where is my community? Where's my ideological home? And if it's not the church, it likely is something volunteer-based, charitable, or even political. Uh, and uh, so that, that's how we see ourselves continuing to build community uh, you know, as we move forward in this increasingly divisive and digital age. So, Abby, I think a bell went off a couple of days in Iowa. You participated in an event with some fellow political leaders, and it wasn't an official kickoff to the 2022 midterms, but let's call it an unofficial <laughs> kickoff. What was the tone of people optimistic, pessimistic, um, energized, or deflated by the current state of affairs? First of all, I, I think folks were really excited to be with people again, right? And that energy was palpable. Um, you know, I think back to, you know, what happened in 2020 in my race in particular, we couldn't knock doors. We weren't talking to folks face to face because we weren't trying to make our neighbor sick. Um, We weren't holding big rallies. Um, It was November, you'd have to do that type of stuff indoors (laughs) Um, and in in Iowa. And it just was not that that was against CDC guidance. We weren't gonna do that. We weren't gonna put people in danger. And it was really tough to be able to, you know, really fight back on the misinformation that was continually being pushed from the other side. And when you can't do that type of stuff in person, I think it's detrimental. And so what we saw um, just a few days ago was a whole group of folks together and being able to, again, talk about the truth, be honest, be able to talk about things they care about. And And to be honest with you, I truly believe something special is going to happen in Iowa in 2022. I can't exactly tell you why. I don't know exactly what it is, but I can tell you, um, you know, the way that Republicans have been winning elections here in the state, they have um, barely, but they have. And what we're seeing is that our electorate is just not, you know, it's it's not a 60-40 state, right? It's much closer than that. But the way that our leaders are legislating and voting, whether it's in the state house or whether it's in the U.S. house or whether it's in the Senate, is very extreme and not really reflective of our state as a whole. And I think folks are waking up to that. I think there's this idea too, the way I grew up in Iowa was that you didn't think you were better than anybody else, no matter what you did, where you went, anything, right? Um, And that you helped your neighbor. And those values, we are not seeing reflected in our leaders right now. And I think in 2022, when Democrats can knock on doors, when they can hold rallies, when we can be face-to-face with folks, I think, again, something really, really special is going to happen here. We've seen it before Um, in 2010, I'm sorry, um, in 2007, Democrats had the Heck, the governor's mansion, the state house, the state senate here in 2018, we flipped um, the congressional seats where Democrats held three out of the four, won a statewide, multiple statewide races, almost won the governor's mansion. And when you're looking at a midterm, I think, again, Iowa's a state where something really, really special can happen. So let's talk about the changing composition of America. 
the country now, I think it's about 18, 19% Hispanic, about 13, give or take, percent black. And then the AAPI population is on top of that. And we're getting close, well within our lifetimes, America will be more than 50% non-white. There is a massive movement across the country right now at the state level uh, and beyond to change voting laws. Zach, Abby, for both of you, give us the next 50s view on what's happening and how challenging do these evolutions in law make it to ensure that our elections and everybody that wants to vote can vote? Well, look, one of the things that the voting rights legislation put forth seeks to address is the role that money plays in politics. And, you know, the next 50 is squarely engaging in and addressing that issue. Um, And actually, what's interesting is, should any of these voting rights pieces of legislation pass, um, it actually ups the value of the grassroots donor in politics because there would be a matching donor system uh, where, like New York City, where if you're a New York City resident, I think for every dollar you spend, I think the the city matches it uh, like six times or so. Um, that means that your, your dollar goes further as a grassroots donor uh, in, in, in the political system. What this means for the next 50 is it makes politics more acce- or, or running for office more accessible to a young person. And, uh, you know, if we make politics more accessible, running for office more accessible to young people, you mentioned the changing demographic shifts in our country. We're going to see people run for office who we just previously haven't seen run for office because it's not... Uh, economically viable. Uh, We're talking not just about the cost of running for office, but the financial sacrifice that it takes to run for office and then perhaps lose and not know what your next gig is. Um, You know, we're talking about uh, the sacrifice, not only that an individual bears, but also on their family. Think about mothers running for office and fathers running for office of young children like that. We lack representation from those folks. And we have groups Uh, out there now working to address that so that, you know, young parents can run for office. Um, And so voting rights, the the legislation out there uh, is not necessarily just about voting access, but also about access in our political system and how people are able to, uh, you know, build power. And I think for the next 50, that's a huge part of of what our focus is. And and until a piece of legislation like that passes, we're going to keep doing the work that we're doing. But we see our work continuing to be of value. In fact, even being perhaps even more valuable uh, in in a post-voting rights legislation uh, system, because that's where young folks and grassroots donors are going to have even more power in our political system. And and in the meantime, they're going to we're going to keep building that out. Abby. Well, I think, yeah, you look at even a state like Iowa, um, where (laughs) um, we had our secretary of state, Republican secretary of state, send out absentee ballot request forms to folks um, before the primary last year, um, and then basically get a slap on the wrist by the, you know, the elected Republicans thinking, why are you doing this, right? And because his job is to help make sure that everybody can vote. And so when you look at the laws they're passing now, one thing that I hope we can do well is just ask the simple question to folks across the country, why would you be voting for a political party that's actively trying to make you not be able to vote? 
right? Um, they're making it harder and harder and harder. And why is that? Why do they want so few people, right? We should be making it easier for folks, especially um, our elderly, um, our young people who are in, you know, college, who are, um, you know, trying to be involved, all of that. I mean, we spend so much time just trying to turn people out, right? Making sure they get to the ballot box. It's extraordinary to me that they are spending so much time and effort making it harder. And I think, again, we need to be able to explain that to folks and say, um, you know, this is about democracy. And that's truly, you know, I, I, I got into this partly because of my faith in democracy, of seeing it up close and personal when I was 16, and the assault on democracy that we have seen um, with the lies and misinformation that have been spread specifically about our election, right? Um, about what happened on 1-6, and then now these assaults um, on our voting rights all across the country. Um, we've got a fight on our hands here uh, to do everything that we can to make sure we elect leaders who are concerned with making sure <laughs> that democracy prevails, right? It's, it's, it's that important right now. And it's that simple. And so anyway, I, I remain hopeful, but it's concerning what we're seeing. But I believe in the American people and I believe in democracy. And I think that every American citizen should have the right to vote um, who is eligible <laughs> and we should be making it easy for them to do so. So Matt, that, that's what it's about. It's like, it's not about Democrats or Republicans. It's about preserving our democracy and making sure that people have access uh, to the basic needs that will allow for their families to thrive. And, and, you know, the next 50 doesn't see itself associating with a specific party explicitly because it's a party. It's associating with a va values and a vision for our country. Uh, that a, a certain group of people in our country is trying to take away. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's the swing district candidates that are going to make sure that we have the power to, to protect what our country has worked for nearly 250 years to build and make it stronger. So in a perfect world, and I know we're not in a perfect world, but Zach, if we were, could you see a point where the next 50 could support candidates of both parties? You know, I'll give you an example of actually where uh, that's happening today. Uh, a state like Alaska right now, uh, if, if you've heard me talk about politics over the past couple of months, you've heard me talk ad nauseum about Alaska because I find it to be a, a fascinating place. Um, Alaska right now is the only state that voted for President Trump that has a state legislative body that is uh, controlled by Democrats. The reason it's controlled by Democrats is actually because of a coalition formed be between Democrats and Republicans in the state who are aligned to form a caucus uh, that was values aligned, uh, that wanted to make sure that there was a check on, on Republican leadership in that state. Um, and so, you know, they recognize that, you know, party affiliation uh, wasn't necessarily the be all end all of how we vote and, and where our values align are aligned. And there are states also like, for example, Kansas, where Senate candidate Barbara Bollier, a couple of years from 2020, actually was most recently a Republican because there are two branches of the Republican party in the state of Kansas. One, the Chris Kobach wing of the Republican party to get a little nerdy here, that, that is fundamentally anti-democracy, anti-access to, to healthcare. 
uh, and another that that is more moderate. That's the that's the wing that Barbara Bollier came from. But she abandoned the Republican Party to join the Democratic Party uh, because she saw her lives be uh, her values, specifically on the issue of healthcare, being more aligned uh, with her background there. So uh, you know, I, I think that there are states that perhaps fall under the radar. You know, we get we've spent so much time put so much time and attention on states like Texas and New York and Florida and California because they make up the preponderance of our, our country's population. But there are different models for for how for the future of our democracy in states like Kansas, in states like uh, you know Alaska, uh, that don't necessarily fall within the traditional notion of Democrat and Republican, uh, and that's perhaps where the next fifties work lies. Well, so I would I would like to add to look. There are a lot of Republican groups doing um, the work to elect young Republicans. They've been doing it for decades, and quite frankly, Democrats haven't. Um, and have not been putting in that work. And it's why I think it is so important that the next 50 exists because that support should be there for Democrats. It's been there for young Republicans Mm -hmm. and it was about time that Democrats uh, actually uh, support their young people who have ideas, who have, you know, goals and who um, should be running for whether it's, you know, city council, whether it's um, school board or eventually the U.S. House. I mean, that's the work the next 50 is doing and they're filling a void um, that quite frankly has needed to be filled for decades on the Democratic Party. I appreciate you bringing that up, Abby, because Matt, just to kind of bring us full circle, you asked me at the beginning of the conversation about Student Voice and, uh, and the work that I, I was doing there. At the time I started Student Voice in 2012, I often referenced that Charlie Kirk, a prominent conservative activist, started Turning Point USA. As a conservative activist, he could raise money with ease. I mean, people throw money at young conservative activists. As a young left of center person, I mean, you have to beg and prove and show impact for, for years before folks will, will support your work. Think about the work that Abby had to show, do to, to even be seen as a credible leader among her peers when she was elected to the Iowa State House. Uh, we, we are a party that uh, young people, that, that perhaps takes, or a movement that takes young people at times for granted. And we can no longer do that. We need to be investing in our young people uh, because right now the results are folks like Madison Cawthorn and Lauren Boebert, uh, who are the face of the, the next generation of leadership in Congress, were over 50% uh, of those under the age of 45 are Republicans. That just goes against you know, our, 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 our pre-existing notion of, of you know, where young people lie uh, in our political ecosystem. And that is inherently my story. And I, I have had the privilege and fortune of being able to connect with folks who, who want to invest in the future of our country. And, and Abby and I want to work together to make sure that, that other young leaders, as they rise up, have access to the support they need uh, to represent their communities, their values, and their vision for, for, for our country for the next 50 years, because conservatives have been doing it for the last 50 years. So let's jump to something I read just this morning. As the U.S. gets ready to leave Afghanistan, we now see China moving in quickly. And uh, I was at a dinner recently hosted by my my pal Richard Edelman and his uh, wife, Claudia Romo. And there was a discussion with some of the leading experts uh, in the country from academia on U.S.-China relations folks that were involved going way back and were around when, you know, Nixon and Kissinger 
were first opening the doors to China back in the 70s and is still around today. We don't seem to be able to focus on those issues and the challenges coming from other parts of the world in Washington. We're spending so much time sniping at each other. And again, going back to Abby, something you were talking about earlier, a passion about policy. Are we as a country putting ourselves in a losing position by, oh. by not being able to focus? And we've got someone in China, Russia is not that capable. You know, there's a lot of bluster, but at end of day, I spent a lot of time in Russia and I marveled at how we spent all those decades fearing them. I'm certain if they pressed any of the buttons, springs would have come out. China is very capable and they are moving quickly in Latin America, in Africa, um, with their program, building infrastructure, investing in communities, and really embedding themselves into economies all around the world. I don't think we sniff any of those ideas, let alone, let alone implement them. Are we setting ourselves up to become, I hate to say this, but on the global superpower stage and also rant? Uh, well, let me just uh, clarify something here. We did focus on it um, during my time in Congress. This is one of the best examples of um, just how much, you know, things that really mattered were drowned out because uh, you'd have Donald Trump tweeting something or another person tweeting another. And this is just a perfect example. So um, I come from Iowa, right? And trade is a huge, uh, uh, you know, hugely important to us. Um, and as I was running for Congress, this is when the president started, or the former president started the trade war with China. And it, our farmers were hurting, filing for bankruptcy. And the longer that that trade war was going on, the quicker Brazil was deforesting, planting corn, and taking away our markets that we had you know, built for decades. And so I was screaming about trade every chance I could um, and begging our senators to pay attention. Please ask the president to get it together, to have a plan here, to have some strategy. There was no strategy. And it was a trade war essentially started on Twitter without real plans. And so we would hold hearings. I ended up chairing the Rural Development, Ag Trade and Entrepreneurship Subcommittee on the Small Business Committee. And there I'd be having, um, you know, we'd have a, a farmer sitting at the table. We'd have somebody from the UAW sitting at the table. So, um, you know, the, the auto workers union, because we were talking about good paying jobs at John Deere that were in my district. And if our farmers were not doing well, um, neither was John Deere. And that meant, again, we were going to be losing those jobs. And so we brought farmers and we brought labor together at the same table to talk about trade, a thing that many people in Washington didn't think could be done. And we talked about the trade war with China in particular. Later that day, I had a meeting with Ambassador Lighthizer, um, where we were talking about trade again. And I'm just, you know, having this day where um, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking everybody in Washington must be talking about this, right? Because that was my entire day. And I walked into the cloakroom right before we were about to vote and CNN is on. And all I see is something about, I believe, Jared Kushner and security clearances. And I thought, 
okay, this is, <laughs> we, we've got a problem here. And so um, again, I, I wanna reiterate, it is not that it hasn't been focused on. It's something again, that I cared a lot about, still do, um, because it was impacting my community in such a large way. My brother and my, or my sister and my brother-in-law are corn and soybean farmers. At one point, they were sitting there with a bin full of beans over where 60K less than they were a few years back. And you're talking about, you know, what, how are they going to make it, right? Um, so there's so many things that um, unfortunately do get drowned out that I hope the Biden administration is paying attention to, that I, I hope they are, you know, again, moving forward on trade policies with plans and with um, real solutions here, because uh, this does impact us globally. And when you've got that trade war that had gone on as long as it has with China, what you're seeing is, and what we, we saw for a couple of years here in Iowa is, again, folks declaring bankruptcy, bigger corporations coming in, buying up that land, pushing out small family farmers. And that's not how this is supposed to work. And again, the longer it went on, you have Brazil deforesting, also updating their infrastructure so that they can move corn faster and they could get it out faster and be competitive. When we've got our locks and dams is why we compete here in the United States and here uh, in Iowa, because we can move our corn, we can move beans, down the river and at a very in a very cheap way and get them you know around the world right and the longer we go without updating our locks and dams which again is why a large infrastructure bill is needed um if one if one of those goes down that impact on our economy and trade is huge so anyway I care about it, focus on it. And I think, you know, again, it's not one of those topics that I think a lot of people thought was a sexy thing to talk about or that interesting, but is one of the most interesting and most important things we should be talking about. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I just worry that on the global stage, China is just slapping us silly. Um, okay, so listen, this endless number of things to talk about, but uh, we, we've got to wrap. I, I'd love to just ask to close for each of you a simple question. Optimistic or pessimistic? I don't think Abby exactly. or I would be doing this work if we didn't believe that that there there was there was something worth fighting for and something that we could achieve. And so, uh, in, in that sense, I'm optimistic, but I'm not naive about uh, the fight and the challenges that we have ahead of us. This this is not going to be easy. Uh, the odds are not necessarily in our favor, um, but if but you know we've we've defied expectations before. And it's usually the young people who are leading the charge on, uh, on defying those expectations. And so that's why we're doing the work that we're doing because truthfully, like uh, this is one of the, the few ways that I really feel like we really can turn the tide uh, on preserving our democracy to, make to maintain the United States standing in the world and strengthen its standing in the world. And also make sure as young people across the country have reminded us over, over the last year, but really over the past four or eight years, uh, like we've got a lot of work to do to become a better country, a stronger country that serves our communities better. Um, and, and the way in which we do that is in part by electing young people who uniquely understand the challenges our country faces. Fantastic. All right, Abby, take us home. <laughs> uh, I'm incredibly optimistic. And as um, our former president, uh, Barack Obama, liked to say, fired up and ready to go uh, for whatever happens next. I think there is a lot to fight for here in our country, democracy being at the very top of the list. And, you know, I, I, I will say this, um, 
the anniversary of D-Day just happened um, a couple weeks ago or maybe. Uh, and I'm, I remember looking at, you know, uh, people were posting about it and uh, of our heroes who served. And I had a great uncle who was on the beaches of Normandy and was served in the fourth infantry, uh, my great uncle George. And he literally liberated Nazi concentration camps, right? He was um, on the beaches of Normandy, was a medic, was shot at because he was a medic. Um, and I think about the fight that he had, the fight that my grandfather had um, being on the USS Bunker Hill, getting hit with two kamikazes, walking around with shrapnel and his legs the day he died, right? Um, they were both, they were on both sides of it uh, in, in terms of the Pacific and then on the, the Western front. And I, I just think of them and the fact that they were the last name Finkenauer on their uniform and fought for democracy, for freedom, um, the things that my great uncle George must have seen when he was liberating Nazi concentration camps, right? Um, and the fact that they kept going and they had so much faith in this country and what they fought for. And I thought to myself, I may have lost an election but um, we've got a lot to fight for here in this country. And uh, if they could keep going, I sure as heck can and excited um, to, to figure that out and keep serving the best that I can, both my community and our country. Great. Well, thanks so much to both of you for doing this. I really appreciate it. And we try to bring different perspectives to great minds. And I think talking about with a real finger on the pulse uh, approach to what's happening today, what will be happening tomorrow, how we got to where we are, and more importantly, where we're going. Um, it's been great to talk to both of you, and we love what you're doing with the next 50. Um, engagement is the whole, that's the whole game, getting folks engaged in whatever you believe in. Uh, and I commend you both for doing just that. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. Matt.